Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. According to an analysis done by TipRanks, a subscription-based service that collects large amounts of data and measures the performance of financial experts and corporate insiders, purchases made by US executives between 2015 and 2020 outperformed the S&P 500 over the ensuing 12 months by an average of five percentage points. If that sounds suspicious, it might well be because it is. But to understand why, one first needs to have mastered the complex maze of rules governing, or not governing, as we shall see, insider trading in the US. My guest today has spent years doing just that and has authored a number of groundbreaking papers on the subject. Daniel Taylor is a tenured professor of accounting at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. His research focuses on issues related to corporate transparency, accounting fraud, and insider trading. He has published extensively on these topics in leading academic journals, has led seminars at dozens of top business schools across the globe, and has won numerous academic and industry awards. And he's here to talk about insider trading, the state of play at the moment, and what can be done about it. Professor Taylor, delighted to have you on. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, David. My pleasure. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to an episode of the of the Knowledge at Wharton podcast uh, in which you were interviewed. Um, this is the, the podcast of the Wharton School itself. And the host's first question to you was basically something along the lines of, uh, how is insider trading doing these days? Uh, to which your reply was, alive and well, <laughs> which I thought was, uh, was funny. Tell, tell our listeners, just to get things started here, what, what you meant by that. Well, I think that um, there is this notion or, or, you know, maybe I had this notion, some other people had this notion based on movies and, and popular press from the 80s and the 90s, you know, about Gordon Gecko and Wall Street. And, you know, you have these um, Wall Street barons trading tips and, and engaging in all this illicit trading and, you know, the savings and loan crisis. And then, you know, yeah. theore theoretically, uh, you know, that's all gets cleaned up. You know, there's the Enron debacle. There's the Sarbanes-Oxley bill that comes out to uh, changes reporting, changes some rules. And so I, I, I think that as a result of that, um, you know, people tend to tend to view our markets as being, you know, better or enforcement higher or rules as being, you know, stronger. And I think I think that's actually not the case. Um, I think, you know, when we think of free and fair markets, you know, I'm not really sure that, you know, we're, we're on a level playing field in U.S. capital markets. And, you know, some mm -hmm. people would say, well, you know, like obviously we're not on a, on a level playing field. And, and, I, and I think that's, you know, that's a valid point that we're not on a level playing field. But there, this recognition needs to be that there is a significant amount of informed insider trading happening in U.S. capital markets. Mm -hmm. And that's the starting point. And then the question is, okay, do we care? What should we do about it? But just the, there is, the first thing is to disabuse people of this notion that insider trading doesn't happen anymore. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. And of course, there are there are also political repercussions to this, and 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 we'll come to that uh, in the course of the episode. But uh, I'm just curious, what what spurred your interest in the topic? Well, so I had done um, I had done some work 
uh, on the financial crisis in, in 2007 and the, uh, the TARP, the Trouble Asset Relief Program that the U.S. government had to bail out the banks mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, did some work on the disclosures, the bank disclosures that were being made and some of the trades of the officers and directors at the banks who were getting bailed out. And so what spurred my interest is, is, you know, you can imagine a scenario in which, um, you know, let's say that the the bank CEO or, or someone on the bank board is politically connected to someone in Treasury. And okay. the person in the Treasury Department, the U.S., you know, calls up the calls up the, the, you know, the buddy on the bank board and says, hey, you know, Jim, you know, looking looking good. Government's probably going to come to the rescue, you know, mm-hmm. bail you guys out. And then he hangs up the phone. And then Jim, now having spoken to his friend at Treasury, maybe buys some shares in his bank because now he realizes, you know, that the government's going to step in. Mm-hmm. Is that insider trading? That's the first question. And is that elite, what I just described illegal under under U.S. laws? And then the final question is, is that, you know, what's the likelihood of detection or prosecution of that behavior? So those are sort of like the three questions or three or four questions, you know, to go through. I think most people would say that, yes, that would be considered insider trading. Um, Although hard information was not passed from the individual at Treasury to to the individual at at the bank. It's not like, oh, the earnings are going to be 50 cents or we're going to give you, you know, 2.5 million in in bailout money. The notion that the probability of the bailout or of government aid increased is still valuable, right? That's still material. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, if you trade in stock markets, we trade in probabilities all the time. Right. Uh, um, so I think most people would say it's insider trading. Um, and then I think the law, I think if you could have, you could establish those facts and circumstances, that it, it transpired exactly as I just described, then I think that you you might be able to convince, uh, you know, the DOJ or the SEC to open up a case. And then the final question is, could it be detected? And could you actually win the case on that? And those are, unfortunately, <laughs> more depressing answers right, uh, right. in terms of very difficult to detect and very difficult to win the case. And so that's how I got involved in the paper that we wrote, Political Connections and the Informativeness of Insider Trades, mm-hmm. looked at the trading of officers and directors in banks during the financial crisis based on whether their biographies in the annual report noted that they had connections to the Federal Reserve or the Treasury. Hmm. And so what we found is, is that within a given company's board, right, so you're holding the company constant in some sense, controlling for that, just comparing different directors on the same company. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those that were politically connected tended to be more aggressive in their trading uh, and their trades tended to bode well for bank bailouts and for future stock prices. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of eye-opening. You know, as many people note, you know, there weren't really any criminal prosecutions as a result of the financial crisis. Right, we got yeah. a call. I got a call from the SEC and the DOJ, and they were like, hmm, tell us about this paper. Um, you know, okay. can we get your data? Can we, can we do these sorts of things? Um, and that really opened my eyes to uh, the value of academic research for enforcement purposes. So before that, I was pretty a bore. I was a pretty boring academic. I might still be a boring academic. I was <laughs> certainly a more traditional academic, studying arcane theories about voluntary disclosure and mandatory disclosure, and 
and sort of, you know, in the academic bubble more so. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote that paper and I started to see that that our enforcement agencies really valued data analysis of trading patterns and for the purposes of, of enforcement activities, that's when I said, hey, you know, there's really something here. I think I can be of value outside of academia to society broadly. And so that's what caused me to do more research on insider trading. Very interesting. Very interesting. So let, let's get into the into the nitty gritty here. Um, also for for the listeners, could you could you sketch out what makes someone an insider under U.S. law, and which requirements are they obliged to meet when they perform certain trades that non insiders don't have to? Well, so I think that there's you know uh, there's two ways to think about insiders. The one way to think about insiders, and this is how we typically think about them in the academic literature and most of my writing is about corporate insiders. So insiders at a company, uh, IBM, um, you know, Amazon, Walmart, trading in that company's stock. So for example, if an IBM, if the IBM CEO traded in the IBM, in IBM stock, we would say that would be a trade by a corporate insider. Mm-hmm. Right? So most of the academic literature focuses on corporate insiders. Broadly speaking, you know, for the, the legal structure in the U.S., it's individuals with material non-public information. Um, however, they come into possession of that material non-public information. Okay. Um, and then if they are a corporate insider, they have to file what is, well, not file, follow what's colloquially known as the disclosure abstain rule. So if the CEO of a company comes to realize that they're going to miss their earnings target uh, or they're going to miss their earnings forecast, then either uh, they disclose that, and then they can trade after they disclose it, mm-hmm. or they abstain from trading until they disclose it. So that's what's known as as disclose or abstain. And the rationale for that is that the officers owe a fiduciary duty to the shareholders of the corporation not to use their access to company information for their own personal gain. Right. Uh, the, the second type is when you have someone who's potentially outside of the corporation who comes into possession of material non-public information. There, that's typically known as misappropriation theory. So you could have an example where company A and company B are engaging in confidential merger negotiations, and one of the lawyers uh, for, for uh, an outside law firm comes to advise company A on the merger negotiations. Mm-hmm. And then that lawyer, by virtue of his position advising company A, trades on the knowledge that company A is going to merge with company B. That would be a uh, misappropriation because they took the information uh, that belonged to company A or company B and then appro- misappropriated it for their own personal gain. So that would also right. be considered insider trading. Okay. Um, Even though they're not an insider of either company A or company B in the sense that they don't work for either one of those companies directly right. from the inside. Okay. That's right. They took the inside information, right? So the information originated inside the company. Mm-hmm. And then this lawyer in this example uh, misappropriated it for their own personal gain. Right. So uh, I think uh, you, you, were mentioned, you were quoted in, in a Bloomberg article um, as saying that most Americans believe the stock market is rigged and that they're, mm-hmm. in a way, they're right to do so, right? And, and actually, uh, I think my listeners and certainly people in general will be astonished to hear as I was that there's actually no law against insider trading as such. If I, if I've understood it correctly in the U S 
tell us how that can be and what what prosecutors rely on instead uh, in in these cases. Yeah, so I mean that that's correct. There is no so let's back up a second. First, that most Americans do believe that the market is rigged. There have been surveys, uh, Pew Research and others have done surveys on people's impression of the market. And uh, not, not the cryptocurrency market, but the U.S. stock market. Right. <laughs> and uh, a majority do, do in the survey say that it, it's rigged. So it's, not, it's an accurate description of the sentiment of America. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of insider trading, you're, you're right. Insider trading, there's no law in the U.S. that says thou shalt not engage in insider trading. Uh, instead, existing cases of insider trading have been brought um, under uh, what's known as anti-fraud statutes or mail fraud or wire fraud or taken a uh, or the prosecutors have taken a, a, a broader interpretation of sort of anti-fraud and viewed insider trading as one particular type of Mm-hmm. Um, of fraud. The the problem with that approach, and this is really fundamental to the U.S. system and why I think we see widespread insider trading, uh, although not very well recognized, um, is because there's no hard law against it, there's also no hard definition of it. Mm-hmm. So when someone goes to prosecute an insider trading case, one necessarily has to look back at previous case law. Right. So if there's no law that says this behavior is illegal, then that means you have to look back and to see how courts have interpreted these fraud statutes in the past Mm -hmm. and whether the behavior that you are actually seeing fits into those previous interpretations of the anti-fraud law. So uh, if I may, I know I'm going on a little bit of a tangent. Um, No, no, please. One example that's that's currently uh, before the courts and it's being litigated. Um, this is, uh, it's called the Panduat case. Um, you can look this up. I'm, I'm probably going to get the company names wrong. So I'm just going to say company and company B. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Panduat, it's on the SEC's uh, docket. It's, it's public, um, was a lower level employee at a company. And, uh, he learned from the CEO, um, that their company was going to get bought out. Right. So you can think of okay. company A buying company B and Pandawat works for company B and company B is going to get bought out at a premium. OK, mm-hmm. so if Pandawat then immediately. So then he traded immediately within a few minutes in uh, I think it was out of the money options. Right. So it's like, how are you going to inside a trade? You're going to trade immediately and you're going to do it in a pretty highly leveraged way so you can maximize your gains. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, he traded. Now, if he traded in Company B stock, because he just learned that Company B was getting bought by Company A, and he works for Company B, they would say, okay, that's classic insider trading. But you know right. what he did? He bought Company C stock. Actually, I think it was call options on Company okay. C. Interesting. So now, there hasn't been a case like this before. So this is what's colloquially known as shadow trading. So you learn information about one firm that is relevant to another. So it would be like, you learn that uh, Coke is no longer going to make Diet Coke. And based on that information, you buy Pepsi, right? right Highly yeah. relevant to Pepsi. Mm-hmm. I think most people would say, yeah, that's still insider trading. It's taking information you know, from your employer and using it for personal gain by purchasing shares in another security, even though it's not you know, your employer's security. Mm-hmm. But that's currently being litigated, and there are plenty of lawyers out there that would say that's not how the courts have defined insider trading, you know, 
in the past. Right. And we don't like novel cases. We like, you know, cookie cutter cases. So that that's an example where I think most people would say, yeah, that's pretty clear cut. Like you learn that one piece of information about your company and then you trade the company's competitor, um, you know, for personal gain. That's pretty clear cut insider trading, but that has not yet been recognized by the courts. Um, and so that's why I think you, you see in the U.S. going back to the system as being rigged and going back to, you know, my sort of statements about how insider trading is alive and well. Mm-hmm. It's insider trading as an, how an economist or how the everyday person might define it. It's not right, insider yeah. trading by how the law has defined it, because there, because there is no law, it's scoped out very narrowly in terms of previous cases, which are a much narrower set of, uh, of, of activities. Right. Yeah, so, so that's great because it gets us to the question of what it would take to, to get a successful prosecution, right? So as you just said, it has to, in a sense, fit into you know, the box of previous cases so that it's recognizable for the law as, uh, as, as insider trading. But talk about also how, how difficult it is to prove the intent behind it, right, and, and getting proof of these things. Well, right. So you know, a good example is so we can rip these things from the headlines. Um, uh, you or your listeners may be familiar with the trades of um, some of the senators during the coronavirus uh, uh, initial mm-hmm. coronavirus outbreak, in particular um, Richard Burr, right, I think yeah. a senator from from North Carolina, and um, and there, you know, they have to disclose their trades. People look at the trades and they said, "Oh, well, you know, you seem to have traded, you know, after you just got this private briefing from, you know, from experts about what was going to be happening in the U.S. So you had this information at the time." And then you purchased shortly thereafter. You know, you had, you, yeah. so the, the, the allegation is, is you were given material non-public information and then you traded uh, in a way to exploit that. Mm-hmm. And the response, and this is reported in the Piper Press, that he and some of the other senators that were wrapped up in it made is, no, 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 we, you know, uh, you know the country was in, in peril. You just watched the news reports. You know, everything's breaking loose. Uh-huh. We, okay. we just traded based on what we saw in the news. They're just really good at reading the newspaper. <laughs> well, that's, that's just it, right? So how will a prosecutor prove mm-hmm. that they traded specifically on the information that was provided in the briefing, right? So uh, one good example is one, I think it was a uh, congressman. Uh, Chris Collins uh, from New Jersey, who they actually yes, did yeah. convict of insider trading, there they had text messages of him tweet, uh, texting out to his family members, hey, just learned, you know, this is going to happen at this company, buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. And so with that information, it's pretty clear that he's trading as a direct result of having learned that private information and urging other mm-hmm. people to do so. So that's an easy case to make in terms of the intent or scienter, uh, intent to, uh, intent to mm-hmm. deceive where that's harder to make. If you don't have those sort of, you know, that sort of smoking gun, because then the defendant can just say, no, no, no. You know, I, I was just trading based on what I saw on Fox news or based on what I saw on right, CNBC yeah. or something like that. So. Right. And, and, we'll, and one would have to assume that <laughs> there are a lot more people who are not silly enough to put it in writing, right? That don't, don't text it, don't email it, just keep it in their own mind. Uh, precisely because they know that, you know, absent some written proof of what they were thinking at the time, it will be very difficult to to prosecute them, right? Well, I don't want to give advice on how to engage in insider trading. Okay. <laughs> so I will decline to answer that. <laughs> All right, great. <laughs> now, 
Now, now there there is supposed to be a mechanism that curbing insider trading abuse, and that would be the 10B5-1 plan, if I'm reading that correctly. And it's a great name, really easy to remember. But uh, evidently, this mechanism doesn't seem to be fit for purpose. Could you tell us how it's supposed to work and, and why it's not effective? Sure. So the way that the 10B5-1 plan is supposed to work is that the corporate executive, so it's mainly for corporate insiders, the corporate executive has large stock ownership, right? Elon Musk has large stock ownership, Jeff Bezos, large amounts of stock ownership. They need a mechanism to sell their shares without arising suspicion of insider trading, right? Mm -hmm. So right. if Elon Musk just dumps $10 billion in one day, and then Tesla announced earnings the next day, and they missed their targets, people would say, oh, well, Elon you know, knew that and engaged in insider trading. Right. So the SEC came up with this 10B51 plan. And the idea is that it would be a, uh, I'll put, put air quotes around this, a contract, quote unquote, where the um, executive would specify in advance the amount of shares that he or she wants to sell, the prices that he or she wants to sell, sell at, and the timing. So basically an algorithm for how to sell a certain amount of shares. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then they would put that in place. And then, you know, over the course of six months, a year, three years, however, the algorithm would just like naturally kick off the share sales and the executive can say, hey, I, you know, I put the plan in three years ago. So mm, I didn't right. know yeah. three years ago at the time that we would be developing this vaccine or I didn't know three years ago that we were going to beat earnings this quarter. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was what the initial intention was of these pre-planned trades. The deficiency was is that it's a quote-unquote contract because it's non-binding, and it can be canceled or modified at any time, and it can be canceled or modified while you are in possession of material non-public information. Yeah, so that's, while the, that's cannot, the kicker, right? I mean, <laughs> while you can't adopt the plan in possession of material non-public information, you are allowed to cancel or modify the plan uh, while you have that uh, that information. Um, so all you have to do is, is have a plan, right? And then you can just tweak it and you could tweak it. Correct. Now, uh, examples that I've given in, in some of my lectures and, and, uh, chair Gensler has mentioned, this is what we're talking about when you mean modify a cancel while in possession. And this is the, the, you know, the lawyers, the lawyers speak coming out. It is illegal to trade while you're in possession of material, non-public information, but it is not illegal to not trade while in possession of material non-public information. Okay. So you could set up a plan to sell five days before every quarterly earnings announcement for the next year. Uh-huh, yeah. And then if you learn that one quarter out of the year you're going to do really well, you cancel the sale right, for that yeah. particular quarter. And you're not trading on material non-public. While you have material non-public information, uh, the person in that case didn't do something, right? And so it all looks legit. That's right. That's right. So that's an example of where you can pause or suspend or cancel a trade uh, in these plans while you have private information, right? When And no one looks at that and says that's a good idea. Uh, obviously, I don't know anyone that looks at that and says that that's, that's a good idea. And so there are other abuses associated with these plans. Mm -hmm. So, for example... You know, I mentioned the notion that you put the plan in place and then it would, you know, it would sell shares over a year or, or multiple years or multiple months going forward. 
but there's no requirement for that. So we've seen instances where executives put the plan and quote unquote the plan in place on one day and they sell the same day. And they say, oh, well, it was pre-planned. Yeah. Well, what do you mean it was pre-planned? Well, we planned it in the morning and we sold it at night. Right. You know, and it's and one thing ha- it, it came before the the other, right? So it's all right. Good. And you look at that and you say, like, w- like what? Huh? Like, come on. And then their lawyer says, well, it's that's allowed under the law. And it's like, yeah, I, I guess technically it technically it is. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I have a so, point. Yeah. And, and, and there are examples. Um, you know, I think in in the um, uh, that I've helped some journalists with. Uh, the CEO, CEO of Abbott Labs has a few trades where, you know, he put the plan in place on Friday and then it sells, you know, multiple millions on Monday. Um, so there are really no rules that require the plan be used as intended. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So one thing that I don't quite understand is, is that why we don't see more of the plans. Um, I think that the plans right now are probably 65 to 70 percent of trades of sales. I should say, are 10B51 sales pursuant to these plans. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of surprised that we don't see more given the flexibility under the current rules. Okay, interesting. So uh, the, 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 some of the work you're doing is based on, on the large-scale analysis of data. Um, explain for, for our listeners what kind of information lies hidden in this kind of huge haystack uh, of data and and what contribution can this approach make to, to combating the issues with, with insider trading that, that we've talked about? Yes, yeah, so it's a good question. Um, in the U.S., uh, corporate officers and directors have to publicly file their trades in the company's securities within two business days on the SEC's website electronically. Okay. Um, and so... You don't see the trades of the executives in other stocks, and you don't see the trades of, you know, say, lower-level employees. So the data that's available to the public is really restricted to the trades of corporate insiders. Mm-hmm. And so potentially because of that data limitation, uh, most of the work is focused on, on, on corporate insiders. But you, know, you can imagine you know, every trade made by corporate insiders in their companies you know, back to, you know, 2002 and earlier, all being, you know, digitized, which it is an electronically, uh, you know, machine readable and analyzable. Mm-hmm. So, so once you have all of that, and with the advent of, you know, computer power, you can try and pick needles from the haystacks, right? You can ask, well, let's analyze the performance of David, or let's analyze the performance of Daniel, or let's analyze the performance of Jill or Kathy. And let's see which insiders tend to, you know, consistently beat the market or consistently beat their industry benchmarks. Let's see which insiders seem to consistently trade before earnings announcements or consistently trade before, um, you know, uh, 8Ks or other material events like uh, contracts being filed. Um, And so that that's really, I think, the. the sort of analysis that's being done and that, and that I've done is once you have the trades and you have them indexed by the company and the insider, just looking for, um, you know, statistical anomalies in terms of performance and timing. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So uh, let, let me, let me ask you a question that takes us in, in a slightly different direction and it has to do with, in, in a way the, 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 the political philosophy that underlies our ideas about what is precisely a fair and free market and, and so on and so forth. Because 
there is actually an argument out there coming mostly from kind of libertarian political philosophy that insider trading should not even be should not even be criminalized at all because it presumably or allegedly disseminates information more widely in the market sketch out for for us this argument and and tell us tell us what you make of it well so i i will you know i'm biased obviously one particular direction um but i will say that 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 argument had its its origin at the university of chicago um back in the 60s and the 70s where okay. the notion was that you know we would actually get to a more efficient market you allow people with inside information to trade that information is then impounded into price in a more efficient manner so this goes all the way back to the advent of um the market efficiency school i don't know if you're you you or your yeah. listeners are yeah. familiar with that right that the market prices impound all available information and eugene fama was at chicago in the 60s and 70s and so there's some overlap there in terms of this insider trading principle and and the foundation of market efficiency and so base, the basic idea was hey let people have information let them trade in the market and yeah you know they'll make money from trading on their private information but that will make prices more efficient and because prices are more efficient capital allocation will be more efficient mm-hmm. um, you know people will you know buy at better prices or more correct prices um, so that that's kind of the um, the argument um, where I think things break down is that our understanding of markets has come pretty far from where we were when that argument was advanced in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Um, and so I, while I sort of respect that argument from an academic perspective, mm-hmm. um, that argument hasn't, I would say, been updated from, for recent advances and recent understandings, understandings of how capital markets work. Uh, so some examples. Um, let's think about a hypothetical world in which uh, insider trading, there is no laws or rules against insider trading. There's no prosecution, no nothing. Anyone and everyone can do it. What might we expect to see? Well, you know, there's an interesting paper by uh, not doing his first name justice, but his last name is Bhattacharya. Okay. Uh, and I think it's in the Journal of Finance. It's like the world price of insider trading. And what he does is he studies insider trading in countries, trading of corporate insiders in countries where there are no rules, no laws, and no prosecutions for insider trading. Okay. And I think, I think if I'm remembering correctly, the country that he specifically singled out was Mexico um, during a specific regime. And what he found was when earnings were announced in Mexico, um, the prices didn't react. So an earnings announcement came out, prices didn't move. Do you know why? Because the insiders had already put all of the price movement into prices. So there uh-huh. was no need. For, okay. So the, the market didn't respond to the corporation's disclosures anymore because the corporate insiders had already traded everything into price. Mm-hmm. Now, in, from the efficient market standpoint, you know, from Eugene Fama or uh, Chicago School, that's a good thing because markets are more efficient. They reflected the price sooner but do we think that like, what do you think the consequences of that are going to be for equity market participation um for you know uh, equity market growth for the economy in general i mean i think mm-hmm. if we had that in the u.s you'd see far far less participation in equity markets because people would you know would think that the 
system was even more rigged. Right. It would be officially rigged, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And, and so there, there are consequences to that, right? I mean, this Mm -hmm. goes to sort of this basic notion of, and this is not a legal concept, this basic notion of a fair game or trust in the system. And if people don't have trust in markets, you know, we've seen in academic work on, on research, on trust and surveys of trust in institutions that things break down really quickly. And then the markets basically become a, a sideshow or, or even more of a casino than they might be, than they might be now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an argument against, you know, it sounds, the argument of insider trading should be allowed, sounds somewhat compelling from an academic perspective. But if you go the next couple of steps and you think about the equilibrium and how people would mm-hmm. respond and how other decisions would be made as a result, it breaks down you know, the case for that breaks down pretty easily, um, right. you know, nowadays, given our understanding of how markets work. Sure. Yeah. And also, I think if you if you take a slightly broader perspective, right, and look beyond just the kind of the narrow confines of the market and and, and, you, and you simply, you know, kind of think about how that how that would play out. Right. I mean, we were joking just now that, you know, people would know the, the game is literally rigged by law but that that has repercussions right on on people's faith in in politics more generally right on on, in in society more generally yes i think i think that's right i think i'm I'm probably butchering it but uh le jeu sont fait right the the dice (laughs) of the game is set uh so to speak um and Mm -hmm. i do think that that has political implications and i think you're seeing that i don't think it is a coincidence at all that people nowadays in the u.s think the markets is rigged and simultaneously are willing to back sort of uh, extremist political candidates who campaign on tearing the system down. Sure, right? yeah. The only way that those candidates win is if people actually want the system torn down, which would suggest that people don't like how things are, how things are set up. Um, and sure, so yeah. it, 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 it is surprising to me that the connection between white collar crime generally and our politics has not yet, I would say not yet been made or not yet appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You see people saying, oh, drain the swamp, throw the bums out. Where does that sentiment come from and why does it resonate so well with people? It's because people feel the system is rigged. So if you Absolutely. don't want people, to, if you don't want people to feel that way, you have to have some very powerful prosecutions and you have to show people, demonstrate just not with words, but with actions mm-hmm. that there is not two sets of rules. There is a single set of rules and that they'll go after, you know, whoever breaks those rules. And unfortunately, I, I just don't think that that I, I just don't see that happening uh, uh, in practice. Um, well, I've worked with many people at the, you know, at the, the DOJ and the Securities and Exchange Commission. I think that fundamentally, our enforcement agencies are, are often incentivized to notch small victories and to notch, you know, many small victories. So if you look at the SEC's insider trading cases, for example, they don't tend to go after, you know, massive hedge fund trading rings. There are a couple of those for sure. But by far, most of the cases that they bring are against uh, traders who, um, you know, bought out of the money call options right before an earnings announcement and maybe made a profit of like 200,000, 300,000. It's very rare that they go after uh, the really, really, really big fish. Mm -hmm. And you have to wonder, is that because the big fish isn't doing anything wrong or is that just because of, right. <laughs> you know, timidity or some sort of institutional feature uh, that would, 
you know, militate against going after the big fish. And I do think it is the latter. Right. And, and, and just to, to mention again, that you, you, the, the paper you, you spoke about at the beginning, I think, you know, the fact that no, precisely there wasn't this kind of enforcement action after the financial crisis in 2007, 2008 to 2009, I guess, um, I think left really deep scars in, in kind of the, you know, the psyche of, of, of American society. And for a long time, you know, that, that, that sentiment that there was some deep structural unfairness that had not been punished, that precisely had not been punished. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, in a, in a kind of perverse way had even been rewarded, right? I mean, some of these folks actually, you know, didn't even lose significant amounts of money. Then sometimes some of them didn't lose their jobs, et cetera. That mm -hmm. sense of resentment, I think, festered for many years. And, mm -hmm. Absolutely. you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty close to all, to all of this. I've studied studied it for over a decade, and and I, I don't take it lightly. But I do think that there is a institution. There are there are institutional features that push our enforcement agencies towards going after uh, the small fish and not not the big fish. Um, mm -hmm. An excellent book, if anybody wants to follow up, is um, the Crisis of Under Enforcement uh, by John Coffey. Uh, okay. John Coffey is an, uh, a law professor at Columbia, uh, and that that book, uh, Corporate Crime and Punishment: Crisis of Under Enforcement, it's a great read, and it goes over the the actual institutional details, like the nitty gritty, like what aspects of the Department of Justice of the SEC, what aspects of our institutions mm -hmm. would potentially lead to under enforcement. Um, so you know, if you want to do a deep dive, that's a that's a good you know, it's a good read and it's written to be accessible. So I'd recommend. Excellent. Thank you for that. So, uh, we're reaching the end of our, of our time. So let me, let me ask you one last question. What are, what are some concrete things that, that we could do to, to curb insider trading and restore the public's faith in, in the governance of, of public markets in the U S by we, you mean the listeners or by we, you mean the, the government, <laughs> the, the, the all knowing sovereign, I guess. <laughs> In an ideal in an ideal world, yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I th I think that's I think that's uh, that's an important question. I think that the 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 couple things that need to happen is right now the SEC is not running real time monitoring on uh, on all of the trades that go through markets. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, uh, there's a an entity called Finra, and Finra is a collaboration of the major U.S. exchanges, and they're running market surveillance. Okay. Um, I think that we need to have a much broader and much richer market surveillance at the SEC. Um, I also think that you, we need to have greater collaboration between the SEC um, and the DOJ. So in one area, you would have all of the data on all of the trades and options coming in uh, to, a, to a central hub, uh, and that would be processed to farm out leads. And it would be processed to farm out leads by the people who actually have to bring the cases. Right mm -hmm. now, you have FINRA who's doing surveillance, but they're not a government entity. Uh, so they're you know, paid for by the exchanges. Then you have the SEC who does the uh, civil side that you know, brings the civil insider trading cases. And then you have the criminal side with the Department of Justice. We need to sort of all consolidate those into a central, a central agency. Um, the other, th you know, other things that we can do is, uh, quite simply, we can enforce, enforce our existing laws. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, there are cases where um, 
our senators and House of Representatives are subject to the Stock Act, which not only prohibits them from trading with material non-public information, but it requires them to file disclosures of their trades in a timely manner. Many of those trades are still being disclosed on paper, and they're not being disclosed electronically on, on an easily machine-readable website. So that's the first thing that needs to change. It needs to be easily disclosed on a machine-readable website. And there need to be penalties for non-disclosure. So there have been examples now, um, uh, Rand Paul and some others who haven't been filing their trades in a timely manner. They need to get fined, right? You can't just mm-hmm. let, them, let them go and say, do better next time, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our corporate insiders, they have to file within two business days to the SEC, as I mentioned earlier. There are over, I think we calculated, $5 billion in trades that have not been filed on time, been filed weeks late, months late, even years late. There needs to be penalties for that. Yeah, that's, that's not hard. That's not hard because you look at the disclosure, the disclosure is dated today, the trade occurred six months ago. So the SEC could easily just slap them a fine. Um, and I would say we need a law. We need to define insider trading um, statutorily and then say, this mm-hmm. is what we mean by insider trading and that this is what is illegal. Because then that will clarify for, um, for everyone, including you know, defense counsel and plaintiffs, what is what is and what isn't considered insider trading? And then I think if you did that, you'd have a lot more robust enforcement and you'd start to see things turn around. Um, right now, I think it was it last year, 2020, uh, the SEC brought the fewest insider trading cases since the 80s. And I can tell you, it's not because people suddenly are becoming more ethical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not it, right? <laughs> right. right. Uh, yeah. So then the question is, is it, well, why are we bringing, you know, fewer mm-hmm. cases and, and how do we, how do we, you know, turn that thing around? So that, that is my concern is my concern is that if, if we have the rules and they're not being enforced and it's happening in plain daylight, then that creates a culture uh, that people, I think the average American has picked up on creates and feeds into that culture that things are in fact rigged. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, um, our time is up. Um, that was, uh, that was great. Uh, it was a very interesting conversation. Interested listeners can find out more on Professor Taylor's personal website, danieltaylornalytics.com, and also on the website of the Forensic Analytics Lab, which he leads, uh, the link to which can be found on his faculty page on the Warden website. Um, Professor Taylor, that was terrific. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Thanks a lot for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned for more such episodes. Until next time, so long.